Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by co-founder of The Lincoln Project, host of LPTV's The Breakdown, author of Everything Trump Touches Dies, Rick Wilson. Rick, thanks for joining me. And bon vivant, man about town and boulevardier. Pleasure to be with you, Reed. <laughs> thanks for being here. You always improve my Mondays, that's for sure. The scourge of Tallahassee. Fear my wrath. <laughs> In what will be an infamous portrait of Lincoln Project grandees, he will be known as the scourge of Tallahassee. Yes. <laughs> also on board today is senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and author of It Was All a Lie, Stuart Stevens. Stu, good to have you back. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me. So... Oftentimes in history, summer has been the fighting season, and the summer of 2021 will be no different for the Lincoln Project. Uh, of course, our battlefield will be the American political scene and how we see it as we go not only later into this year, but also as we head into the 2022 midterm elections. And I wish we could find a time when we could say that, you know, the next election is not the one that's, if not existential, then really, you know, the most important one we've seen in our lifetimes. And so as we start to think about how this year is going to affect next year, I just want to spend some time for everybody in radio land out there talking about how we see the world. And so, Rick, I want to start with you. So obviously, not to anybody's surprise that, you know, the first six months of this year have been a little bit chaotic. First for American politics, as we saw January 6th, there's a sort of a sheen of normality, as Stuart has discussed. But a lot of things are anything but normal. And obviously, you know, we should not shy away from the fact that we've had our own issues in the first few months of this year, but that we are now coming out of those and steering back into harm's way, as all of our good naval fans would say. So where do you see the Lincoln Project first in this moment? And then secondly, how do you see where we are in this fight more broadly for American democracy? We had a springtime of discontent, if you will. And we had to come through some things that, frankly, they were a price we paid for being one of the most decisive super PACs against Donald Trump. We had a lot of enemies. They took their shot. We're coming through that. There'll be a lot more news in the coming days about how we've come through that. And we are now looking at what the battlefield looks like in the immediate future. We released an ad last week called The Line, and it was about this choice that is before us. It really is about whether or not we're going to have a nation that believes in democracy and the republic and the constitution, or if we're just going to skip right to the autocracy part. And there are a lot of people who would be very comfortable with that outcome. And it's our objective to ensure that those people cannot hold and yield political power. It's our objective to be a strong voice for democracy and for liberty. And it's our objective to be on the front line of that, using the skill set that we bring almost uniquely to the current American political environment. There are other people who make ads and do communications and organize movements but none of them have been in the same space that we've been in, which is a combination of blunt truth-telling, hard-hitting, 
political action that few others would have the guts to pull off, and a sense of commitment to this country that isn't about policy or politics, but it's about a passion for trying to save this republic. Let me just say this, too, as a speaking for Rick and Stuart here and for all of us, the Lincoln Project, we cannot say thank you enough to those of you who stood with us at the darkest of times, at the toughest of times, and to our opponents, as Rick said, you took your shot. You tried to kill us, and here we are. And that is not because of anybody who's speaking on this podcast today, but because of the hundreds of thousands of people who listen to us, the millions of people who watch our ads, the millions of people who follow us on social media, and who, when I can tell you sometimes I didn't know where we were going to go, said, don't give up the fight, don't give up the fight. And to those hundreds of thousands of people who've contributed financially. And so let me just say that and that, you know, we will, because of your commitment, redouble our efforts to do what we can to ensure that if democracy is going to go down, it ain't going to go down without a fight. And so, Stuart, let me ask you this. We've talked a lot about what has happened in the United States politically since January 6th. And so now looking over the next 90 days, as Americans are going to open up, as they're going to get out of their houses, as they're going to spend money they haven't been able to spend, and as they look forward to a summer going back to seeing their friends and family, getting out in the old family truckster, what do we need to do as Americans tune out, but the battle space is set for 2022? You hear a lot of talk these days about bipartisanship. I think what is the most remarkable about the Lincoln Project, at least when I came on board, it really struck me, is it is a broad coalition. And at a time when we think that everything is so polarized in America, I think there's something about the Lincoln Project that brings people together that have very different ideological viewpoints, but have a commonality of a commitment to democracy. That is really what is unique about the role of the Lincoln Project, that we're not out here pushing a specific set of issues, except those that relate to democracy. But we're not battling about capital gains tax or even health care. We are about the preservation and the continuance of the American experiment. Our role is to speak to this larger issue of what is at stake now. And we talk about this a lot, but when democracies slide into autocracies, it is usually because those who are most committed to democracies never think it can happen. And that is a great advantage that the folks on the other side have because they think they're going to win. It's easy to look at these people and dismiss these people as fringe. But this hasn't become fringe. This is the mainstream of the Republican Party now. And the Republican Party is an immensely powerful, patient force, incredibly well-funded, with uh, a highly developed propaganda arm. And that is a formidable foe. And part of what they want us to do is to make these issues smaller. They want to make this race about culture wars, like critical race theory. <laughs> you know, pretty much that's all people, are, you know, from the morning bell until, you know, after recess, all your study is critical race theory. Well, no one really even can explain what critical race theory is. I think about seven people in the country could speak to it truthfully. And that's our place in this, I think, to sound the alarm, to articulate it to be a gathering place for people of different persuasions and to be able to effectively fight in that space. You know, Rick, I want to spend a minute on coalitions because you can go back to 2018 where Donald Trump, you know, had a check put on him. In 2020, last year, a grand coalition came together 
to defeat Donald Trump and elect Joe Biden, but it didn't apply to down-ballot races. So now, how do we recreate that coalition? The coalition has splintered, not surprisingly, as coalitions do, right? There is an objective, there's a goal. They come together for that goal, sometimes organically, sometimes actively, by hook and by crook. You can make an argument that all of the things that everyone does, every one of these groups, whether it's dozens or hundreds or even thousands of them do, have their own little piece that adds up to the final tally that is victory on November. But what do you see as the hurdle to recreating that coalition now? And it will be different next year than it was last year or three years ago. But what do you see as your biggest concern in that regard? I think it once again comes down to failure of imagination. These are groups that frequently believe, and they believe it so sincerely for all the right reasons, that if only Americans will focus on infrastructure or health care or climate change or gun control or issue X or issue Y, then they'll win the election and everything will be perfect. And sadly, this is what the Republican Party relies on in the Democrats. They recognize the sincere and passionate belief in a certain set of policy goals is a crippling political detriment in most races. And, you know, I say this a lot, people think I'm just jaded and cynical, but policy is not going to be on the ballot in 2022. America is going to be on the ballot. Donald Trump was not about policy at the end of it. It was a referendum on him personally. We knew that it would be that from the beginning. Many of our allies did not understand that. They still wanted to wrestle this thing down on what they thought were persuasive policy questions. But at the end of the day, voters are going to have to make a choice. Do Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell run this country almost with an iron hand? And do they impeach Vice President Harris and President Biden, which they will do? And do they engage in more political chicanery, which they will do? I mean, Mitch McConnell on Monday, came right out and said, if we get the majority back, I will block any Supreme Court justices that Joe Biden puts forward. That's not a surprise to people, but a lot of our allies in these various coalitions still keep thinking you're going to win based on some magical formula, some algorithmic hoodoo that gets people motivated. But they need to fight in the space where the battle's really taking place and not in the battle that's in their heads. We were lucky enough to be in Los Angeles for our first time out, I guess, last month at this point. Maybe it was even late April. And we were standing in someone's beautiful backyard. And one of the guests, as we were taking questions standing up there, said, I'm not sure I trust you, but you are useful. <laughs> I remember that guy. Yeah. Which we don't take personally. And we, you know, on some level, I guess we're even flattered by. But how do we communicate to folks both in the Democratic Party, whether or not they're moderate Democrats? progressive Democrats, even some of our Republican friends, maybe former colleagues who might still be mad at us, the fact that we took a shot at Susan Collins or Dan Sullivan in Alaska last year and say, look, guys, we don't have to like each other. We don't even have to talk to each other past the first Tuesday in November next year. But if you really care about this, you got to get off the sidelines. You got to stop ticky tack, petty fighting and decide, like, what side are you going to be on? Is that a universal message we broadcast to everybody? Do we have to speak to different people in different ways? And lastly, do you think there's any of those folks who might still have some hard feelings for us that might be willing to come across the line and say, okay, you're right, I've seen it? Or is it we're going to have to just find every last voter we can, you know, in the next 18 months? I have always found it very peculiar, this suspicion that people have in the Democratic Party that somehow 
a small group in the Lincoln Project is going to disrupt the Democratic Party. I mean, there's, <laughs> let me get this straight. So it's like 81 million people voted for Biden. They control the House. They control Congress. They have all these governor's races out there, all these state legislatures. But look, you got to really look out for these guys that work for the Lincoln Project. I mean, it's sort of an absurdity. But if you believe what we say and what a lot of people say, that this is a threat to democracy, all of those concerns that Rick might have made an ad against the capital gains tax being lowered, and I might have made an ad against Obamacare, it becomes petty. And, you know, I would hope that people could understand that the steps that we took are not steps that you take lightly. I mean, to walk away from your tribe, and politics is a tribe, particularly when you operate in it professionally, is not something that's particularly fun. It's not something that you would ever thought we would do, I think, for all of us. But it's responding to what is the urgency of the moment. And I think that really has to be the model here. Rick, there's the coalition building piece of this. And this occurs, you know, there are governor's races next year, as Stu mentioned. There are U.S. Senate races. There are 435 U.S. House races, a lot of which, you know, we won't know what those look like until redistricting occurs later this year. So what do we say to our friends and allies now about how we need to, one, band together, and two, how we need to operate? Understanding that some folks, most folks, are not going to operate like we do. As Stu likes to say, they have people to answer to. They have a party to answer to. They have specific policy things they want to get done. So how do we start that conversation now so that a year from now, we're not just saying, well, who the hell are we going to get to work with us? Look, we got asked a lot last year, like, when will you start a voter registration drive? And our answer was always, we're not. That's not our job. It's not our wheelhouse. It's not what we're good at. They're valuable. And we supported people that did them, like Stacey Abrams in Georgia. But we're not jacks of all trades. We have specific skill sets, specific competencies. And those are things we're going to let our allies know we're in the game. The analogy that's used a lot, which is very flattering, is the special forces analogy. We're the SEAL team guys. You may not want us around all your parties because we're not as tea and crumpets as some people, but you do want us when you want to go blow shit up. Let's be clear, Rick. Stewart's the only one that ever got invited to those parties. You and I were never <laughs> considered Georgetown worthy. Let's be clear. No, no. But I promise you, I always said a good word about you guys. Yeah, that's what you tell us after the fact. <laughs> and Stuart, so how do you see it? I mean, you think about it in, in all the big campaigns we ever worked on, we had a coalitions department. As an advance man, I wasn't entirely sure what went on over there on a daily basis, but we always had one. So what do you see as far as how we bring these disparate groups together? Again, for this one thing, not for a broad set of things, but for that one thing come next November. I really think it goes back to this failure of imagination. This is sort of a guns of August moment where you can't imagine the world going to war over the assassination of a minor archduke. But it did. I just think that the American exceptionalism that is a positive in many cases is a negative in this case because it's very difficult for us to see a world in which America is not as it has been during our lifetime, a leader. And that's a post-war World II America. With Trump, we began to see what that world was like. America was not the leader of the free world during the Trump years. It was Germany. And thank God Germany was there. But you know, our president up there sort of being Vladimir Putin's bitch 
and not articulating what our values are, that can escalate. And you now have millions and millions and millions of Americans who don't believe they live in a democracy. So what does that mean? They're going to teach their kids they live in an occupied country. And you're not going to have a nominee for president in 2024 on the Republican side who will assert the 2020 is a legal election. So it's one thing when they say, well, I accept Joe Biden as president. I accept Vladimir Putin as president. That doesn't mean that he was elected. And we should not let them get away with wanting to have it both ways. They want to be able to go to the base and say, you know, we were robbed, the big steal, it's out there, we have to fight, we don't live in a democracy, and then try to go to donors and say, well, look, you know, if you want your taxes to be cut, if you want to get regulations cut, you have to back us. And don't worry, this is just stuff we're whispering to the base and we don't really believe it. It's a fundamental test of what you believe in. I think you believe in what you're willing to fight for. And that's the dividing line. And I think that with us, we kind of reached the point where we are willing to fight for this stuff. I mean, we kind of had three choices with Trump. Either be for Trump, that wasn't going to happen. Do nothing, which you know a lot of our friends did. I don't think many of us have a lot of friends that think Donald Trump was the greatest president in the world, but they would just kind of go along with it or fight. So we chose to fight. As it turns out, it's a lot worse than I thought it would be. I suffer from that failure of imagination. I'll, I'll be the first to admit. This is a moment. And you have to, I think, sort of step back and look at January 6th, not as an odd moment that just we'll look back on as sort of a strange occurrence, but the beginning of a movement in America that really does threaten what it means to be an American. Rick, you know, this week... President Biden was over in the UK for the G7 summit of economic leaders. That used to be the G8 till we finally threw the Russians out again, thankfully. Now he's in Europe for the NATO summit. Look, I was lucky enough to be, you know, one of the lead advance people for the 2001 G8 summit in Genoa, Italy, and then again in Kananaskis, Canada in 2002, admittedly a long time ago. And a lot of this is there's, you know, a formality to it. There's these communiques. There's all these things that go on. But you could always count that, you know, when at least when President Bush was sitting in that chair, President Obama was sitting in that chair. And now President Biden was sitting in that chair. Everybody knew who the leader of the free world was, even if they, you know, weren't necessarily in agreement on one policy platform or another. For the four years of Donald Trump's presidency, when you'd see these world leader meetings, he was a joke. He is a joke. You know, there were times when he put Ivanka in the chair with the elected leaders of the world's great democracies. So how is it that you can see how well Joe Biden is received by these leaders and, you know, by definition, by many of their people and say Donald Trump was the greatest president we ever had. He was the most American president we ever had when literally people would laugh at him. How is that possible? Well, look, Reed, we live in this reality bubble now in our country where there are two Americas. One America believes that COVID will allow you to attract spoons to your head through magnetism and that Hillary Clinton runs a global child predator sex ring. They are post-reality, and there are very cynical people around Donald Trump and around the Republican National Committee and around Ronna McDaniel who are willing to take that craziness that they personally laugh at and weaponize it and monetize it. Because, you know, everybody that's in the WinRed database, I promise you there's a field somewhere in each profile for are you a goddamn lunatic? 
<laughs> and do you believe in crazy shit? Then check this box. Yeah, that crazy shit field is apparently a lucrative and highly profitable thing for those folks in the WinRed database. They love that. And for those of you listening, WinRed is a massive Republican database system that almost all the candidates use to track and to appeal to voters. And it's gotten progressively more crazy. But that's just it. They have mainstreamed the crazy. They don't care about it anymore. They're not worried about it anymore. They think it's okay. They really think it's fine. And when you start to believe that, that the profit from raising the money from the crazies and the political benefit of being with the crazies is no longer in question, you're going to get more crazy. So, Stuart, let's move to a topic that we all spend a lot of time on, a lot of energy on, and we'd be lying if we said we didn't relish, which is who are our opponents in this and what makes up this national populist ecosystem that has, I think, really expanded further and faster than just Donald Trump. Remember, we used to call it Trumpism. I think we've even surpassed that. So you take a guy like Ted Cruz from Texas, who a couple of weeks ago insulted the American military, said, you know, that the American military was being feminized, right? It wasn't even strong enough to stand up to American borders. What do global opponents like the Russians and the Chinese think when they see that, when they see conservative think tanks and Republican members of the United States Senate saying this stuff, what do they think? And is that in any way patriotic to go out and do that stuff when you talk about America's men and women in, in uniform? I think they celebrate it. I mean, look, what did the Russians do in the 2016 race? They tried to divide Americans. They set up phony African-American groups. And this has been a part of anti-American propaganda going back to the 20s, that America really isn't this place that you should admire. So, sure, it's not home of the brave. It's like home of the feminized military. It's extraordinarily corrupt for someone like Ted Cruz, who's very existence and career is a testament to the strength of the American dream. I mean, this is someone who punched every establishment ticket possible. And it's just to get attention, to be accepted, to be applauded. He goes out and says these deeply, deeply anti-American things that aid and abet our enemies. And it's anti-patriotic. So, Rick, you know, to extend on Stewart's piece about Cruz, when he sits in his study, in his mansion in a wealthy neighborhood in Houston, paid for by his wife's salary from Goldman Sachs, the same wife he allowed to be insulted by Donald Trump and bowed to him for it. And he sits there and he looks at his diplomas from Princeton and Harvard. He knows what he's doing is wrong. Does he have any shame for it? Does he have any self-loathing for it? None whatsoever. He thinks this is the game today. He thinks this is how it works. And he's just playing the system. And because he is of this Tea Party era political class that came up where raising money online had become a reality, and you play the game for clicks, and you play the game for outrage, and you play the game for Fox hits, and it doesn't matter what you say or doesn't matter what you do, as long as you're getting the attention, the clicks, and raising the money, you are golden. And so they live in a different world. And people should really be very clear about one thing. If someone came to Ted Cruz and said, hey, Ted, American democracy will die, but you'll be reelected if you keep doing all the things you're doing, he would ask them, well, what's the downside? It is a sick movement and culture that we have not reckoned with yet as a political class. I think we more than most people have, 
but it is still something that Americans have not understood how deeply cynical these guys are. If you use Cruz, he's an example, but Trump sits atop the sort of vertical power structure that is the American right, for lack of a better way to put it. And, you know, I liken it to, I was talking to one of our guys who knows a lot about this and who I hope to have on the show soon. It's sort of like a Jenga game. Trump might be the top piece, but Cruz is one of those pieces. There's a financier wing of the Jenga set, right, which is like Richard Uline, right, from Chicago, who gave $25 million to Club for Growth Action last year. Among other things, you know, they gave $3 million to the Lauren Boebert race in Colorado's third district. And I'm sure if our listeners don't know who Lauren Boebert is, Google her and you will be as ashamed that someone like that could serve in Congress as anybody. You know, there's Rebecca Mercer and, you know, her father, you know, who created the Wacko Parlor app, who give tens of millions of dollars to these kinds of causes. There's the Steve Schwartzman from Blackstone, right, who gave $35 million to Mitch McConnell's super PAC, I think another two or three or four million dollars to Donald Trump. But the bottom line is you're either on the side of democracy or you're not. You could be an activist like a Trump and a Cruz and the people around those guys, or you can be a fellow traveler doesn't matter. You're on the same road. And so as we go into this, and Stuart, I'll ask you this question. Why is it that you can be someone like a Uline? You live in a very fancy house somewhere in Chicago. You're a billionaire through, you know, many of your own efforts, but you also got a lot of money from the Schlitz fortune, right? So that's great. Something you talk about in your book, uh, it was all a lie about how much of this sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps ethos is bullshit to begin with. But why is it that they get to act upon this? They are actors on the field, but get relatively little blowback or suffer very little consequence for the outsized influence they have on stuff? Probably because people don't see the cause and effect of what they do and the end result of it. So there's a direct line between giving money to like the Senate Leadership Fund, Mitch McConnell's fund, and senators who end up refusing to admit that Donald Trump lost an election. That's a direct line. And there's a direct line from those Senate offices where all they had to do was have their comm shop put out a statement congratulating the president-elect of the United States of America, recognizing peaceful transition of democracy, that they refused to do that. And there's a direct line between that to on January 6th, they're running for their lives while a mob chases them trying to hang the vice president of the United States. And people don't see that. They don't understand that the money that feeds this doesn't go just to the policies that they supposedly support. It goes to support a larger movement. And that movement, which once you could argue was a legitimately conservative right of center movement trying to come to grips with what is the role of government in our lives from a conservative viewpoint, that that has become autocracy. And that's how it's going to be remembered. And they can't hide from this. And I think there's a reluctance for people to admit this. I think that these people want to have it both ways. They're the ones that want to go to the Met Gala, but they also want to be able to support those who they think will get what they want out of the system and not sacrifice what they want. It was so ironic here is no economic system in the history of the world has benefited people like these capitalists more. And it doesn't have to be this way. It can change. I mean, look at how great business people are treated in Putin's Russia if they really stand up and try to stand up for capitalism. Yeah, you spend 10 <laughs> years in the gulag. Yeah, you end up in the gulag. And you could see Trump's instincts here. 
when he didn't approve of CNN. You know, he was going to go out and file antitrust suits. And that's how it begins. It's a gradual thing. And you either have to stand against it or you're supporting it. Stu mentioned CNN in the context of being in Trump's crosshairs. But, you know, the media is also a, a huge part of the conservative media is a huge part. Obviously, Fox sits atop that. But we should not underestimate OANN and Newsmax and even Alex Jones have enormous followings. Dan Bongino, Ben Shapiro, Mark Levin, all of these people. I was on the phone with a woman who runs an organization trying to protect voting rights. And she said, and I didn't know this, Rick, that there is a radio station, a Spanish language radio station in Miami that OANN just bought for $300,000. And it was one of the last neutral broadcasters of Spanish language programming in South Florida. And it's now been gobbled up for what is a pittance, really? Yeah, there are a lot of media properties that are being purchased by OANN and Newsmax and others. And here's a little tough love for our friends on the left. There's a belief that people are going to vote for you because of their demographic basis permanently. That is a fatal conceit. I believe that could be one of the most politically damaging assumptions the Democrats will make. There was evidence of it in 2020. There was evidence of it in 2016. There is a split in the Hispanic coalition. African-American males voted for Trump in a significantly unexpected degree. And I think it's time for the Democratic Party to shake itself loose from this idea that you just get to put certain voting demographics in your win column before the election happens. And what the right is doing, and, you know, I feel like we have to like block and tackle this stuff for our friends on the left sometimes, they're going to buy those stations and they're going to play great music and they're going to have funny morning shows and they're going to dump a gigantic load of super far-right Trumpian conspiracy propaganda into it one day at a time. You know, Roger Ailes built Fox as a more fun and more lively and more clever morning news show because he understood that if you had, this is a quote from Roger Ailes, folks, please don't at me. He understood that if you had hot women on the set, you could get away with murder. I've cleaned that line up dramatically from what Roger told me back in the day. But this idea that there's an automatic coalition that the Democrats will always get every time and it's going to always be good and always be easy, is absolutely goddamn crazy. So last week, guys, I had a friend of ours, Bill Burton, on the podcast, and it was a terrific episode. Yeah, and I really hope you guys yeah. uh, who are listening, yeah. if you haven't listened, please download it, because we were able to get into a lot of things that we normally don't, a lot of stuff down at the local level in places like Los Angeles and some issues we don't normally get to discuss. But the one thing he said, Rick, that you've talked about and as we talk about this ecosystem, is that there was a survey that showed that when you asked Republicans who the leading voice was in the Republican Party, 60% of people answered Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson holds no elective office, has never held elective office. But here, when Tucker Carlson says something, 60% of Republicans listen to him as the authoritative voice on it. Well, he also, as someone said on Reddit this morning, Every time he stares at the camera, he looks like a dog trying to figure out a magic trick. My dog takes exception to that. Thank <laughs> you. My dogs do magic tricks. Anyway, this idea that he is a powerful voice in the party isn't just presumptive. It's real. You cannot deny that Tucker Carlson has more power in the Republican Party than any elected official. 
He has more power to shape the views of Republican voters than Josh Hawley does or Tom Cotton or Marco Rubio does. And all of these people will go out of their way. They will bow, scrape, kowtow in every possible dimension and manner to make sure he doesn't get pissed off at them and say something bad about them on the air. I think that's right. And you saw, remember weeks ago now when Matt Gates was first getting into trouble and Carlson had him on and Gates said, well, remember that dinner you had with me, Tucker? And Tucker's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then went out of his <laughs> way to basically call Gates insane in his own right because he was like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. Watching that scene, I could not have been more delighted. You know, if Tucker Carlson had had a lump of coal in his ass when that interview started, he would have popped out a diamond. He was so nervous. I mean, I thought he was about to lose his mind. <laughs> and let me just say, Rick, I'm not sure if you ever did this, but in your time, you would have been one heck of a morning zoo host. So and I say that <laughs> with all the love in the world. But Stuart, let me continue on this line. So as we're going through this ecosystem, so Tucker Carlson is a media personality. We should not take what he says seriously, right? Because it's entertainment, not news. But then you have someone like Ronna McDaniel, who is chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, who is sort of beholden to that type of behavior. She's got Trump on one side. She's got Carlson and those people on the other. She's got the locals beneath her at the state and local level who are all Trump people. You know, a quarter of them are QAnon people now. So if you're looking back on your relationship with those types of people, right, the party apparatus, what does it do now that it is beholden to all of these people who are outside the normal or traditional power structures? Yeah, it's the essence of Trump that Trump requires you to bargain with your principles, you know, politics at its best should lift you up and try to be something you aspire to be, to be a better person. Trump is all about some sort of bargaining. It's sort of the Mephistopheles story that people forget. Not only does Mephistopheles take your soul, he doesn't deliver on his end of the deal. <laughs> and, right, you know, once you begin that process, it's very difficult to stop because it's all this little bargaining. It's this, it's this, it's this. And, you know, the irony of it is that on the, the right, we used to criticize those on the left, probably unfairly, but we still did it, for believing in situational ethics, that it's not ethics if it's situational. And this is exactly what the Republican Party's entered into, this sort of great conceit that somehow a greater good is going to come out of a current evil. And it just never works. And to me, you know, I wrote about this in the book, the collapse of the Republican Party as a moral force, as a party that really stands for anything is unlike anything that we've seen in certainly modern American politics. I can only liken it to the Soviet Union. What the party said it stood for and what it was just became so disparate that it just collapsed. And I said this before, if you ask me today, what, what does it mean to be a conservative and held a gun to my head? I'd say, just shoot me. I have no idea. It's about beating Democrats. That's what a bowling club is. It's about beating the other team. It's not a basis to organize a political organization that, you know, aspires to run the most powerful country in the history of the world. I think the failure of these leaders in the party is just so damning because I think a lot of people out there, they look at Donald Trump and they think, you know, like the guy's a little whacked. He's weird. I don't like the fact that, you know, he talks about having sex with his daughter in public. That's not like particularly appealing. You know, he's creepy, but you know, my senator supports him. And my senator's like a normal person, and he or she knows Trump better than I do, so it must be okay. I think when you look back at that moment, after the Access Hollywood tape came out in early October, 
there was about a two-week period when all these Republicans went out and said, this was it, they're not going to support Trump. And by the end, three weeks later, they were supporting Trump. And nothing had changed. Well, to your point, though, he's moved the bar repeatedly, right? It started with Access Hollywood, and it ended up moved to Ukraine. Then it moved to half a million dead Americans because of his, his colossal failures vis-a-vis COVID. And then it was incitement to riots and insurrection. And here we are. Parties in our system have to form a circuit breaker function. And Republicans never do the circuit breaker. And this is what they're living with. And they're never going to reclaim the party that we once thought we belonged to. There's just no market for it. And how does it end? We don't know. But in all likelihood, the best case scenario is more moments like you had in Georgia on January 5th, in which Republicans lose races they should have won. And by fear alone, it drives them to change. Because I don't think there's any moral point or any purpose that line can be crossed that will make most of these Republicans stand up and say, that's it, that's enough. That's not who I am. So, Rick, you know, I want to continue around the flywheel here. So, you know, there's the financiers. We've talked about Trump and the elected officials. We've talked about the media. But there are also these organizations, right, that are out there, some who have, a, who have been a force for good in the past and have gone silent on us, others like Heritage Action, which have gone out of their way to input these voter restriction laws into these states around the country. We've got a video that Ari Berman from The Nation got a hold of and did a great story on, I think he won an award for it, that said, you know, we're going to go into these places specifically to make it harder for people of color to vote. And they were bragging about it. And so how do we start to take on those sorts of organizations? Or, as I mentioned, you know, this group that hosted J.D. Vance, where he got up behind a podium and said, if you're not for the American nation state, you know, you must be destroyed. How do you start to take on those groups who are well-funded, again, probably by people like Richard Uline and, and the Mercers and others, who have a true and tangible effect on how Americans are governed and the lives they live? And one thing I want to just on the financiers for a second, you know, the thing about a guy like Stephen Schwartzman, who is giving, you know, tens of millions of dollars alongside his compatriots like Mike Lindell, supporting Trump and Trumpism and supporting you know, the Trump candidates out there in the world. You know, he and Mike Lindell are now sort of joined at the hip. They're now the same kind of person. They've made this qualitative decision that it's OK to be in bed with people who believe that bamboo fibers will be found on the ballots in Arizona or that Lauren Boebert is really okay in the end of the day. It's fascinating to me because, you know, you mentioned that earlier, like people want to go to the Met Ball. He's a guy that's given money for Yale and a million other very noble and meritorious purposes. And yet it's like, hey, I'm cool being in bed with Marjorie Taylor Greene, politically speaking, and Mike Lindell. These groups are playing a game in Washington that's frankly very smart and very clever. They're going to play the game and pretend to look like ordinary interest groups they're going to pretend that they're just like you know the regular kind of Washington policy and advocacy groups right up until they don't have to pretend anymore. And what they're asking for is to pick their voters instead of having the voters pick elected officials. They're asking for a set of political outcomes that aren't about the voting booth or the ballot box. They're looking for political outcomes that are about what they've been wanting for a very long time and have not been able to accomplish either by the ballot box or by legislation or by Supreme Court decisions. So they're trying to shortcut everything 
to get to this imaginary state of conservative purity, which doesn't look much like America, to be perfectly honest. Then there's groups like the International Republican Institute, you know, that my dad did work for for decades. Yeah, we all have. Working on democracy, you know, efforts overseas. And Lindsey Graham is the chairman. How is that possible? I mean, how does an IRI, which has done great work, you know, I know late Senator John McCain was very involved in, as you said, you guys have done work. My dad did work in Eastern Europe literally minutes after the wall fell down. How do those people go to work all day and say, you know what, we're still doing the right thing here? How does the National Endowment for Democracy have Elise Stefanik on its board? Like, how do these people look at each other? How do they look at themselves? Washington has gotten very accustomed to looking the other way from the moral disaster around it. And that's just it, Reed. They don't care anymore. They honestly have stopped giving a shit about the belief of who they are in the public mind. And look, that's a great gift for them in some ways. It's a magic sort of get out of jail free card. It means they don't have to worry about public approbation or public sanction. They're just like, nah, screw it. This is a cultural difference in America now in our politics. The other side wants to win. They'll do absolutely whatever they have to do to win. And people should not underestimate how dark and how effective that strategy is and how appealing it is to an awful lot of Republican voters out there in the world. So I think over the course of the next several weeks and months, as I said, as the summer fighting season comes upon us, you know, you're going to see more of us. You'll see more of us on podcasts like this. You'll see more of us in LPTV. You'll see more advertising from us. You might see us out on the road. You might just. But you're also going to see us holding accountable a lot of these people. The one group I didn't spend a lot of time about, but I hope to have a guest next week, as we talk about all this, how does corporate America sit by and say this is okay? You know, in the wake of George Floyd, Last summer, there were a lot of posts about equity and, you know, how black lives matter. And now, you know, they're back to giving bad people and seditionists money. They've clammed up about voting rights. I mean, how is it that they just decide that this stuff is okay? You know, I don't think we have a good answer to that. I don't know what you guys think. I think you have to explain to people what it is they're doing. And I think that it will be bad for business. You know, this is a bet Republicans have made and have consistently lost in recent years, that Nike was going to go under because of Colin Kaepernick. Well, Nike seems to be doing okay. (laughs) You know, the Delta planes are going to start falling out of the sky because they're positioned on Georgia. It's, I think, a complete misunderstanding of where America's going. And businesses that bet on the future tend to do well. And this is the future. I mean, the future is an incredibly diverse America. So, This is what terrifies these people. And I think so much of it, personally, I think so much of it goes back to race, that America's changing and they're not going to be able to have an automatic place in the world that they once did. In these businesses, I think they do the right thing when they have a spotlight shined on them. And I think that they have internal tensions and the side that says we need to stand up to the values that we say that we stand up for. And then they have others that like, no, because then we'll get kicked out of like McConnell's club. McConnell tells us not to take position on politics. I think in the long term, the McConnell side is going to lose on this because business is about change and the country's changing so rapidly and their workforce is changing and their customers are changing. And that is going to drive them to embrace this. 
But the question is, how much damage can be done in the interim? And the answer is a lot. You know, you pass these laws that limit voting. And as we know, you know, better than most people, we work in politics. Politics is about tiny margins often. So to repeal these laws, you have to win elections. So they make it harder to win elections. And then it sort of becomes a self-perpetuating mechanism to reduce democracy. I see in many ways what we're doing now is trying to hold on to democracy until the Calvary comes. And the Calvary is going to be generational. Well, let's sure as hell hope so. So, Rick, how do we recruit some of those members of the Calvary to come storming in on their ponies? What would be some things that our folks can do as they're listening that are tangible and now? I want to get people to to think now, even though we seem like we're a million years away from the 22 election, if you get involved in your communities now and look, people, we, we can travel again. We can go out in the field again and do registration. We can do voter contact. We can knock on doors. Get started now. If you're out in your community wondering what you can do to help 2022, yeah, you can support the Lincoln Project and other groups, but you can also start getting involved in your community. You can start getting involved right away in terms of talking to folks, of communicating with people, of making sure that you're paying attention to what the issues are in your area. You're keeping an eye on your state and local legislative bodies who are going to try to do these voter restrictions. And being a civic-minded person, getting involved on that day-to-day stuff that sometimes it's boring or a grind or hard work or sweaty when you're standing out there in August going to knock doors to voter reg. But the other side is trying to break the spirit of millions of American voters, and it's important for them to see something very tangible, and that's you out there in the world doing the stuff, doing the work. At the end of the day, the sort of things that we do at the level we do them at Let's posit that we do something that's meritorious, but it is not anywhere near the equivalent of people who go out there and put in sweat equity and hustle and get to work are the backbone of an American democratic system that we desperately need to preserve. Stu, what do you think? I think it's all about priorities. We all have really busy lives. Um, You know, one of the benefits of a civil society and a democracy is not having to think about politics. It's when you live in autocracies, that the mood of the dictator, what Putin says, that becomes critical. And we saw that with Donald Trump. You couldn't get Donald Trump out of your face. He was always there. And that is sort of the danger of this moment, because we have a normal president. He goes out there and says you know, the right things. He actually has a competent government that's saving you know, tens and thousands, of, if not hundreds of thousands of lives with COVID. But you have to realize that the enormity of the task can sometimes paralyze us that so many of these races are going to come down to the smallest of margins. You know, something we used to always say in politics, kind of a truism, you know, I want you to vote and I want you to bring five friends. And that is how you win elections. You know, don't think that those five friends might not make the difference because if those five friends bring five friends, you know, pretty soon you have an Amway distribution center. But (laughs) this is what politics is about. It is about small margins. And in this last election, one of the lines that held were these local state officials, secretaries of states in some cases, people who were in the actual voting approval process, be it judges. So, you know, these are races that people don't think a lot about, and they really matter. So vote and get involved like your democracy depends on it, because it probably does. Well, that's absolutely right. And certainly, you know, we have a lot of elections in this country county, city, you name it. And every state and every county has those, and it can be overwhelming. 
in states like Utah, where I live, it's 100 percent mail in voting. So the ballot shows up in other places. You know, you may actually have to go down to a polling place and be one of 800 people who vote for something. But in a race where only 800 people vote, the 801st vote could very well have the difference between somebody who should win and somebody who should lose taking office. And I also want to say to everybody, again, please sign up, lincolnproject.us slash join. Follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, on Facebook, on Instagram. Download the podcast, share it with your friends, so that by the time we get to Labor Day, the flywheel is spinning and we are ready for battle in 2022. But before we get out of here, Rick, where can folks find you online? As always, you can find me on the Rick Wilson on Instagram and Twitter. And Stuart, how about you? Uh, Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. All right. And as always, gang, you can find me at Reed Galen on Twitter. And until next time, thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.